0: Welcome to the podcast, Eavesdropping on Arthurians, a podcast that records some of the world's top Arthurians chatting about Arthurian texts. Imagine you're at an Arthurian conference, and after a day of listening to papers on all things Arthurian, you've all gone to the pub. So, order a pint of ale, pull up a stool, and settle in to listen to two scholars talk about their favorite pub. Today's chat will be with Dr. Fiona Tolhurst. Dr. Tolhurst is an associate professor of medieval English at Florida Gulf Coast University and chair of the Department of Language and Literature. She has, among other publications, published two books on Geoffrey of Monmouth's works that focus on women, especially what she calls female kings, women who rule in their own rights rather than mere queens dependent on men. As you will hear, she connects Geoffrey's pro-female stance in both the history of the Kings of Britain and the life of Merlin to his support for the Empress Matilda. Matilda was the daughter of Henry I of England, and she struggled for the throne of England with her cousin Stephen. So welcome. Thank you. Um, So can you just give us a bit of background to the history of Geoffrey of Monmouth and the genre of the Historia and... So on. Sure. Um, so,
1: Geoffrey uh, was a secular canon, uh, which means he was a man of learning, but he had not taken a monk's vow of poverty, chastity, and obedience. Uh, we know he was at St. George's College at Oxford. Um, and in Geoffrey's day, Oxford was a Norman power base and administrative center. So, we think that Geoffrey knew of and might have known personally the major players in Norman politics. Uh, especially a man named Robert of Gloucester, who was the half-brother of Empress Matilda, who's the woman who functioned as King of England from February to late summer of 1141. Um, So really, Geoffrey was probably at the heart of kind of the the civil war of his his day. Um, He seems to have earned his bishopric of St. Asaph um, uh, as a result of producing his history, the Kings of, of Britain, Um, we, we think this because he had no position in the church hierarchy before his 1152 ordination, which was followed by his consecration as bishop only eight days later. Right. So he doesn't seem to have been a man of the church so much as a man who got a really nice reward for writing a book that, uh, the Normans liked. (laughs) (laughs) Um, we, we also know he didn't actually take up his uh, position there that could have been because of political, you know, the political mess happening around him, or maybe he wasn't interested right. <laughs> um, in, in taking up that role. We really don't know. Um, he really matters because he wrote the most important history written during the high middle ages um, in Britain. And, and I think people forget that his account displaced Bede's ecclesiastical history, right? And Bede's ecclesiastical history is a source that modern historians still use Um, And obviously, Jeffrey's is not considered real history now, but for several hundred years, Jeffrey's history was considered the account that mattered. Right. Um, So I think that's important to recognize. Um, And Jeffrey's important because he introduced a character he calls Morgan, um, M-O-R-G-E-N, but we know as Morgan Le Fay. And he introduced her to the Arthurian tradition um, which is a big deal. Yeah. Um, and she is a very powerful female figure whom he celebrates. There's nothing critical about her at all in what Jeffrey, uh, Jeffrey gives us. Um, he also, um, wrote an early Merlin, uh, account, which is in his poem, the life of Merlin. And I love that poem because it really complements the history in that the poem ends with Merlin's sister, Ganita, receiving her brother's powers of prophecy. And Merlin tells her to prophesy through his authority, which is now hers, and to rejoice in that gift. So there's no resentment at that transfer of power from brother to sister. Right. So Geoffrey seems to be quite consistent in both the life of Merlin and his history in presenting female power in a, in a positive way, at least in a neutral way. Right. Um, he doesn't say, you know, it's a bad thing when your sister takes over.
0: <laughs> right. And he's the, I mean, later writers made Morgan evil, but she wasn't evil in Geoffrey. No, not at all. She, in fact, she's she's
1: she's powerful and and wonderful. She's really reigning over a kind of you know female run um, Eden. Um, she's got all kinds of powers, um, but they're all they're all for the good. Um, so she's not she's not vilified in any way, um, which I think is important. So Morgan, um, before she becomes Morgan Le Fay, is really a, an entirely an entirely positive figure. What I find most exciting about Geoffrey's history is the fact that he has three female rulers. So what you've got is, you know, Gwendolynna, um, who's a regent, um, right, who performs all the major functions of a king. You've got Cordelia, right, daughter of King Lear, who does reign uh, the most interesting part of her story is when her nephews rebel against her. Um, and Geoffrey uses the Latin word civitiae to describe their um, behavior um, which is savagery. So he's basically saying it is savagery to rebel against your female king, which is quite a big deal. Um, and then there's another woman named Marcia who reigns until her death. So technically speaking, she's a king as well. Hmm. Um, so you actually have these three female rulers. Um, and you also have um, a couple of other what I would what I've called female king candidates. Um, One of them is named Helena. Unfortunately, there are a couple of Helenas running about in Geoffrey's history, but there's a Helena who's the daughter of King Holus, um, as well as the unnamed daughter of Octavius. And both of these female king candidates are prepared to rule, qualified to rule. And Geoffrey really presents as tragedies the fact that they do not get to rule. And when a, a female ruler doesn't get affirmed in her position, you basically have political chaos and civil war. So the pattern of the text really suggests that if men would just support their female king candidates and their female kings, the world would be a more peaceful place. (laughs) Um, So there really is a a very pro-female narrative at work in Geoffrey's history. So there is a, a real contrast between these competent, moral females and these incompetent, immoral in some cases, really horrific males. <laughs> there are some good male kings, but I think there's an overall pattern of the females are all good. You know, right. both the female king candidates and the female, the three female um, rulers, um, one regent, two kings. So Geoffrey's message seems to really be building up to why don't we support Empress Matilda to be king of England? Right. Um, you know, he. We know he finished this book in late 1138. Um, which is the year before uh, Matilda started her campaign for the throne. So he seems to really be, and this might explain why he got the bishopric, he seems to be preparing the ground for Matilda to become uh, the first
0: female uh, king of England. Right. Um, Cool. And yeah, that's that's really interesting, the kind of political context that suggests, you know, a motivation for why he might be upholding uh, these female rulers. A lot
1: of readers now, of course, dismiss Geoffrey as, you know, we know his history is not factual. Yes, that's absolutely true. Um, But I think we have to remember that in Geoffrey's day, right, that most people did accept his history. It was quickly translated from Latin into both Welsh and French. Um, He had relatively few critics in his own day. I mean, Gerald of Wales and William of of Newburgh both hated him, um, (laughs) critical of him. And did they um, say Gerald, he was making stuff up or? Yeah, I mean, Gerald basically disliked Geoffrey's book because it was secular history, not ecclesiastical okay. history. And then um, uh, William of Newburgh really attacked Geoffrey for constructing what he called a laughable web of fiction. Um but those are, you know, those are rare voices. And I think we have to remember that um, that there are over two, there are, you know, around 215 manuscript copies of Geoffrey's history around. So it was incredibly popular. Yeah. Um, you know, he was really like the biggest thing besides, you know, the Bible. Right. Um, and, you know, that there are relatively few surviving texts that are hostile to his history. So right. he really was a very important, you know, historiographical uh, figure for hundreds of years. Um, And I think that, you know, I think my students tend to want to believe that, well, medieval people were just naive and stupid to believe that this thing was true, but they wanted to believe this sort of narrative was true because it was validating the Normans taking over. And I think the other piece that's really important is that, you know, historia, the Latin word, doesn't mean just history. It means both history and our modern sense of facts about the past, but also story, right? An appealing narrative. Right. Jeffrey did super duper well was to create a narrative that was interesting, engaging, compelling, and liked (laughs) by his, you know, his, his Norman audience. Um, And, you know, people forget that his main dedicatee is Robert of Gloucester, who, as I said before, is the right hand man of of Empress Matilda.
0: Right. And so maybe people at the time it was historical fiction in the same way that historical fiction is today, that it, the facts that he knew he stuck to, and he made up the rest around sure. them.
1: Yeah. And he made up, he made up dialogue. Right. I mean, right. That's really great. I mean, you know, it's wonder, and he makes up speeches for, for characters. Right. But it's super engaging. Right. Um, and I think people really, you know, people really loved it. I mean, I, I certainly, you know, I, um, I was thinking about you know the the idea of the old Welsh book right or the very ancient British book if you're looking at the the Latin I mean Geoffrey claims to have this very old book that is that gives him the authority to write his history in Latin and he chooses to write in Latin to give his text authority right Latin prose has a lot more authority than you know French verse right or Welsh um, text yeah yeah and so and he's and he, so he's saying he has this ancient Welsh uh, text that he's translating I mean, he very likely made that up so that he had um, a kind of textual basis for his history, but there are some scholars who think he might've had access to a whole collection of historiographical materials in Welsh, you know, bits and pieces of things. Right. That's
0: possible. Um, or maybe you know, oral history as well, which would have been lower status than the book.
1: Right. Yeah, but notice that at the beginning of Geoffrey's history, he's very careful to say that he's valuing oral sources basically as, as valuable as written. Right, right? He's that's trying- weird you know, all of this stuff is important. But Bede, you know, Bede has um, accounts of where he's, you know, listened to people and recorded what they've said. So Jeffrey isn't, you know, he's not some like historiographical crackpot, you know, (laughs) who's who's doing something uh, terrible. He's, he's, you know, he is um, working with, he might well have been working with the oral and written sources he had, Right. Right. Um, we just don't know, but it is, it is, you know, I mean, scholars tend to think it's since we haven't found his, you know, his very ancient British book that he perhaps made that up.
0: Um, well, I but, mean, we, we've lost one of Chaucer's books that we know existed and that was right. centuries later. Right. And I think we're just
1: suspicious of Jeffrey because I think, you know, historians, you know, up until, well, even, up, even now really are quite dismissive of Jeffrey as he's not a real historian because he's got too much, you know, legendary stuff. Um, but you know, he's. I think he's. He's certainly on a spectrum with other medieval writers of history. You know, right. he's not a complete. You know, he's not a complete uh, other. I guess, right.
0: <laughs> from my point of view. Good. Um, yeah. So so getting back to the, your kind of idea of women in uh, Monmouth and so on, we do have the part of King Lear where uh, Cordelia is active and mm-hmm. her feelings, she talks about her feelings and so on. Igerna doesn't have much in her life. In fact, she's she her feelings aren't given at all. and I'm thinking especially compared with Mallory, who gives quite a few of her mm-hmm. feelings. And so and they're treated as property. and mm-hmm. the only thing we're told about their feelings is that line that Uther and Igerna live together as equal, bound by m- mutual affection. So mm-hmm. why is Igerna different from the other women in the story?
1: Well, and part of it is Igerna just doesn't have a very long appearance. And I think her her function is to, you know, give birth to Arthur. Right. <laughs> right. Um, whereas Cordelia is part of a story that I think is really critiquing Lear as a weak king. And she then succeeds him as a strong king, and she gets a lot more narrative space anyway, as do her sisters. Okay. So I mean, for whatever reasons, Geoffrey really liked that Lear story, and he spends a lot of time on it. Okay. Um, I think with Igerna, um, I think we have to be careful with that story, because the way I interpret the Igerna and Uther kind of insertion is that it's like a mini proto-romance in the middle of a history. Right? Okay, Geoffrey's not a romance writer. He's a writer of Historia. Right, he has a couple of he has a, a few episodes that are romance like kind of proto romance, but remember he's writing and you know, he finishes his book in eleven thirty eight, so he's not a romance writer. Right, um, and I think that um, as far as I mean, I think from a modern point of view, obviously Agneta is raped, right, because she believes she's having sex with her husband Gorlois, but it's actually Uther in disguise, which from our modern point of view is a terrible thing. But if you think about say Anglo-Saxon queens, <laughs> right. Um, I don't know that a 12th century audience would have found it shocking or, that um, we have, you know, Igerna marrying the man who started the war that resulted in her husband's death, right? right. Because it's a dynastic match. <laughs> right? right? Um, and I think from the point of view of the plot, we need her to be with Uther, right? right. Um,
0: we need them to get married quickly because she's already conceived, Right. Um, and by the medieval definitions, if you it's when the baby was born, that makes it legitimate or not, not when the baby was conceived.
1: Right. And there are lots of royal babies who are conceived, you know, a few months before marriage. Right. Um, <laughs> right. You know, uh, So that's not that unusual. Um, but I also think that that, you know, one proof of love in the Middle Ages, right, was that a woman produces children. Right. So that, oh, yeah. in other words, the belief that a woman has to experience pleasure in bed to conceive. Right. So. Right, so you do have a kind of validation of the fact that Igarna conceives, right? Right. Um, also, they have a son and a daughter, right? They're right. two children, which I think is interesting that Jeffrey chooses to have a daughter um, as well as a son. There's a kind of gender balance there. And the, the, the translation in your book, right, I think it says, um, right, from then on, they remain together equally united by no small love. Um, that's one translation. Um, another translation, which is uh, one that I've argued for is would be from then on, they remain constantly as equals with no right. small love uniting them. And the parater, the word for equals, um, that when you look it up in the Latin dictionary, it actually um, refers to equality with regard to feudal tenure. Huh. So there's a whole kind of thread, I think, in Geoffrey's history of women having power, right? Cordelia's one. But I think actually Guinevere, Ganumara in Latin, she's another one um, because she participates in um, a royal procession, right, in a mass, in a feast, and there's a kind of women-only women, women only event kind of running parallel to Arthur's event, and Geoffrey really celebrates those events equally and actually says the knights have trouble choosing which party to go to.
0: <laughs> I noticed that, that's hilarious. So it's
1: really important, I think, that Guinevere is not just, she's not just sitting there, you know, right. she's an active member of this royal partnership, um, which I think is, is quite important, and and the women's party is
0: not second class no it's not second
1: class it's a little bit different right that the men have right the male attendants have like fancier matching outfits um and you know which is a little bit nicer than what the what the queen has but but i think jeffrey worked really hard to say these these events are equally grand um and that the knights have trouble choosing which one which is which could be a way of um giving an understanding of the the kind of the time period, which is that you know shortly after Geoffrey finished his history in 1138, right, um, there would be a kind of dramatic situation in which people would be choosing between uh, you know King Stephen and Empress Matilda, right, yeah. and that that kind of explosion of political uh, choice is is already brewing as Geoffrey's writing his history, and I think he's um, he's aware of that. Um, that Merlin, right, asserts that Arthur's going to be the most powerful, right, um, and, you know, kind of king of Britain and build a vast empire, but it's Anna's descendants, his sister's descendants who are going to reign over Britain. So in a sense, Anna becomes, right, the kind of progenitor of you know, the royal, the royal line. So I think Jeffrey's really doing interesting things with Anna and her descendants connect, you know, connecting that idea to, you know, his, his three female rulers earlier, right, with Wendellina and Cordelia and Marsha. So there's just a lot of really interesting, you know, stuff going on. I mean, even um, Arthur's court, which is a scene that scholars have always found wonderfully anachronistic, right? It seems like we're suddenly in the 12th century, right? Um, even though they were supposed to be way back hundreds of years earlier than that. But, you know, that situation where the men and women at Arthur's court are in this kind of mutual moral improvement program, right? The ladies (laughs) stir knights' passion as well as their honesty and the knights love the women. And that causes the women to be both more chaste and more virtuous. Right. (laughs) So, so they're, you know, there's a way in which women are active and visible members of the court and they're having a positive impact on the men.
0: Right. Right. And the men, I mean, the, it, the direct quotation in book nine is those ladies would only grant their love to a man who had thrice proven his worth in battle. And this foreshadows, um, Caetien's and Mallory's kind of, again, mutual improvement that you fight better because you're fighting for a lady. Right. And yeah. the lady will
1: behave better because she loves you. Right. I mean, it's yeah. I mean, yeah. so I think what's interesting is Jeffrey's writing the 1130s, but he's, he seems to be foreshadowing, you know, the genre of romance, right? He's yeah. and. Um, and I think he does it um, in really powerful ways. And even with Egerna and Uther, right? That relationship, you know, Uther is passionately in love with Egerna, right? I yeah. mean, I think he's also very um, sexually interested in her, uh, <laughs> but he, but he is passionately in love with her, right? And, and so there is, there does seem to be love there. And so that, yeah. you know, when they have their life together, I mean, they're held up as this, you know, royal marriage that is a model, right? And that, and if, and if we translate. You know that line in the Latin as you know from then on they remain constantly as equals. Then that's a pretty rad royal marriage model.
0: Well, <laughs> I mean, never mind royal. That's that's pretty radical for any marriage. Yeah, absolutely. Know? So yeah. It's,
1: it's it's pretty neat. I mean, you know, I think um, you know Igerna definitely doesn't have a kind of inner life, right? I mean, that she is she is you know transferred from right her kind of dead husband to Uther who becomes her new husband. Um, but I think you know we have to be careful. I always say to my students that you know 12th century literature, you you know you tend not to get much, if any, interiority of characters, right? You're sure, always absolutely. based on what they say, what they do, and you're definitely doing that in Geoffrey. So I mean, I guess I don't see a Agerna, lack of interiority as as strange because most of the characters in Geoffrey's history don't have it either,
0: male or female. Mm. But not. I think I mean I, the motivation is mostly on Uther's part. Definitely, yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah, and, and Uther definitely is rather like Vortigern, where they're both rather randy males who pursue a particular female. Right. right? Do just about anything to get that female. Right. Um, but I think Jeffrey presents their desires in a way that it, it, in, in a not well, he presents them in a not entirely positive way. So I think we feel that that kind of out of control male desire is a potential danger. Oh right? interesting. Um and I think that's part that might be part of his critique of what I what I've called in, in my book sort of you know male misbehavior. Right. <laughs> um, you know, Vortigern particularly gets really drunk and really Randy. Um and, you know, is is you know and and you know, the father of um uh right Hengist sort of takes advantage of that, right? And sort of, you know, realizes he's out of control and can sort of set him up and tricks him yeah. and the daughter in that scene is really just an obedient daughter she's not a seductress right she doesn't tempt him right he just is interested in her and dad thinks haha this is great for me yeah. <laughs> right yeah. i can use this and again i i really feel like when he's telling the story of cordelia and her and her sisters that he he really seems to be validating the daughter who proves to be honest and loyal to, you know, to her father, right? And Empress Matilda was that as well, right? To her her father. I mean, she had to marry a second husband she didn't really want, (laughs) Um, you know, because dad wanted it. Right. Um, So. Interesting. So
0: so how does Arthur compare to these, to Vortigern and Uther, these randy kind of rapacious (laughs) males who, you know, conquer and lust after people and all of that? I
1: think Jeffrey's Arthur is really, he's celebrated, right? I mean, he's basically the mighty conqueror, right? What he does, he does things well, right? And he's, and he's, um, so he's not problematic. I mean, Uther is definitely problematic. Vortigern is just crosses over into being evil, right? Right. But Arthur, you know, Arthur's a really great guy. And I think Jeffrey is presenting him as, you know, an empire builder. Um, You might view him as a kind of, you know, Anglo-Norman empire builder. Right. And he's, and he's, he's a good guy, right. Um, and, you know, he, he marries the right kind of woman, right, that, that Ganamara is of, of Roman stock, right, so that's a good thing. And of course, in Jeffrey's history, right, to be compared to the Romans, I mean, that's, they're the best, right. So if yeah. you are, you know, if you are able to, um, you know, overcome Rome, then you've got to be the best of the best. Right. <laughs> um, so I think that's really um, important. And I think that, you know, obviously Arthur's conception is magical and problematic, right, because it's based on deception, but Geoffrey never says it's a problem. Right. You know? and, and I think we have, a you know, I, I mean, his, con- Arthur's conception in Geoffrey has been compared to, um, you know, the kind of legendary conception of Alexander the Great, right, which is supposed to, supposedly the work of a magician. Mm-hmm. Some readers will say, well, it's like, you know, it's as problematic as Jesus's conception, right, you know, <laughs> supernatural and crazy. Um, but I think, I think, and maybe, you know, it could be that Jeffrey was thinking about Alexander the Great when he was creating um, his Arthur. Um, but he certainly doesn't present that conception as a problem. He really celebrates Arthur and Anna, and he celebrates that royal marriage as a, as a good thing. You know, right. so I think he seems to really be interested in the dynastic outcome not in how you get there, right? And Merlin is, you know, a brilliant, you know, a brilliant engineer. He's also, he said he's clever and celebrated, you know, uses whatever means he needs to get, you know, to get things done, right? He's also a prophet. Right. Um, So he's, you know, so so Merlin also is, you know, there's nothing, um, you know, sinister about his magic, right? So there's nothing sinister about Morgan either, (laughs) right? Right. Um, So I think that that's, I, I think we tend to kind of read, you know, Jeffrey's Morgan through the lens of like later Arthuriana, and I think we kind of do that with Jeffrey's Merlin as well. Hmm. Um, and I think that's a bit of a bit of a of a problem, um, you know. And I think poor Guinevere in Jeffrey's uh, Jeffrey's book tends to get you know he, you know tends to get bad mouthed as well. She doesn't get you know she doesn't seem to be very important. Um, but I think a lot of readers don't pay enough attention to those parallel processions and masses and feasts. You know, they're they're you know her. I think her. She certainly has a lot of symbolic power, um, right? but that symbolic power seems to suggest she's got, you know, some political power. Um, And, you know, when she betrays Arthur, it's not even clear that she has a choice in being with Mordred. I think that's important, too.
0: Well, that's what I was wondering. I mean, the the quotation in this translation is that, you know, Mordred had seized the throne of Britain and now took his wicked pleasure with Guinevere, who had broken her marriage vows. Right. I mean, so the first half or the first part of that clause took his wicked pleasure mm -hmm. seems to imply that he she doesn't have any say in it. But then the second she'd broken her marriage vows, Mm -hmm. did she do that willingly? Does being raped mean
1: you've Broken yeah re- it's not I think it's not at all clear I mean she breaks her marriage vows and that she has relations with Mordred right but it's not at all clear what you know what has happened right yeah. um, and I think it's really important that um, you know when Jeffrey he never puts a bad name on Guinevere he, he never calls her traitor or you know adulteress right he doesn't use one of those those words but the words he uses for Mordred you know are really harsh he calls them um, perurus perjurer. Right. He calls him artissimus proditor, right? That most criminal traitor. And the phrase when he calls Mordred that most criminal traitor, that is the same adjective, superlative adjective, that he put on the giant of Saint michel
0: Oh, interesting.
1: So he's really demonizing Mordred big time. And he's yeah. choosing not to demonize Ganumara, <laughs> right? right? Which I think is really important because I think a lot of, again, I think that there's a lot of back reading. And this is kind of why I ended up writing two books. <laughs> There's a lot of back reading of Geoffrey's Ganumara from medieval romances.
0: Well, and from you know? the French, you know, seductress yeah. Guinevere tradition.
1: Yeah. And I think it's really, it's really problematic. Um, you know, Guinevere, I think, you know, she's got all that ceremony, right. ganumara has got all that ceremonial power, right. In the crown wearing at um, um, And those parallel processions, right. Really might suggest that the queen is ruling with the king. right. You know? um, and I think that's, you know, and I think the fra- Jeffrey's phrasing, right, that, he, that, um, that Arthur is entrusting Britain to his nephew, Mordred, and to Queen Ganamara to take care of. So they seem to be functioning as, you know, co-regents. Right. In that moment. Um, and then when Mordred betrays Arthur, then suddenly the mention of her being a co-regent disappears. Right. But I think that that is all part and parcel of Jeffrey's demonizing Mordred. <laughs> right. Um, and the, the sex, you know, the moment of their, you know, copulation, um, the Latin there is, a, is also a matter of debate, um, because, um, certainly there's a violation of marriage vows, which is a moral wrong, right? In the 12th century, obviously, yeah. but the phrasing is, right? The capulatum, capulatum fuisse the, the Latin verb form there, um, she had been joined to the same man, Mordred, in abominable sexual relations. It's a passive verb form, um. And it is possible, right, that that we could interpret that as that she has less responsibility for what happens there. Right. right? Um, So she might be less than fully responsible for that sexual relationship. Um, So it's possible that Mordred rebelled, gathered an army to support his claim to the throne, and then gave the queen little choice but to accept his sexual advances. Hmm. Um, And um, I recently uh, published a, a, a chapter with in the Brill companion to Geoffrey, where I kind of lay out the fact that I think you can think about that scene of, of Mordred and Guinevere, uh, you know, being together, you can, you can think of it as a kind of a traditional way of translating that, that moment, and then a more kind of resistant, maybe feminist reading of it. Um, and I think that, you know, there are a lot of bits of Latin in Geoffrey's book that are difficult to translate. <laughs> right. And so there is room for, uh, for interpretation there, I think. Um but what Geoffrey does do is slow down after Mortar's betrayal and really focus on that betrayal, maybe because he's trying to get his readers to recall Stephen of Blois' decision to betray his, his uncle, Henry the I, right, by usurping the throne. Right. Henry I left his throne to Empress Matilda, not to Stephen. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, and Stephen managed to get across the channel and get himself, um, you know, get himself crowned before M- Matilda could get there um but it's you know it's it's i think it's possible to read ganomara as her nephew's victim rather than his you know rather than his co-conspirator right um, so i think that especially because of that you know that most criminal traitor right connecting mordred to the giant of Michel right yeah. who is a just a an evil killing machine right that's what he, so um yeah. i
0: think jeffrey's going kind of way out of his way there to uh to make mordred look
1: really bad and then the
0: connection to the contemporary politics of a nephew with an uncle and fighting yeah. over the kingship.
1: And I, and I've written a fair bit about what I would call the sneaky nephew pattern. <laughs> right. in, in every, um, you know, there's Mordred, but I mean, if you think about, right, it's, it's the the two nephews of Cordelia who rebel against her. Right. Uh, cause that civil war. Um, and I think that's, you know, that's really important. Um you know that it, it's nephews, right? There seems to be a real pattern of you know nephews being uh, being a problem, right? <laughs> um, you know, and I, and that word, you know, that, that, that word, sivetia, right, savagery, to describe what the nephews have done, right? I mean, it's it's savagery to rebel against
0: your female king, right? That's well, and it. that again links it to monsters and giants and so on. Yeah,
1: exactly, right? So that so that men who you know rebel against their their female king are are monsters of a sort. Right. right, which is, um, I mean, I, I mean, I think Jeffrey does, you know, I think Jeffrey does more for his for kind of, you know, the 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 rights of female figures to wield power than I think you know most medieval romances do. <laughs> um, <laughs> he really does. Um, it's you know in in both his history and in uh, and in his his life of Merlin Palm, he really you know he really does that. Um, yeah, and they're
0: not just there to be. Put on a pedestal and adored
1: no they're not just kind of you know beautiful i don't know window dressing right to be to be admired um you know i think i mean again i think is is the exception in that she is she appears briefly and you know she doesn't get a, a whole lot of airtime. um but i think you know she is there to produce to produce arthur um but i think uther is really you know is really problematic
0: can you talk a little bit about about the the morgan Um, what does Morgan do? And, and can you talk a little bit about her role in Jeffrey?
1: Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, Morgan is, I mean, Morgan's in, in the life of Merlin. Um, and she's, and I think what's really, um, what's really cool about Morgan in Jeffrey's, uh, you know, Jeffrey's version is the range of roles she plays. I mean, she's a ruler over this kind of all-female Eden. She's, she is a sorceress, but there's no, there are no negative connotations of her, her powers. So, um, Jeffrey uh, talks about um, when she kind of enters the text. He talks about the friendly law, the Geniali Legge of, of, you know, of uh, in Avalon. Um, Morgan is presented as surpassing her siblings in both beauty and her skill in healing. There's a whole pattern throughout Jeffrey's in the prophecy section, in Jeffrey's history at large, and in um, and in the life of Merlin of, of kind of female figures as healers, um, healing the wounds that males tend to uh, to cause. Um, and I think that's really important. Um, so Morgan is, you know, she's a sorceress. Um, we're told she can shapeshift and she can fly. But Jeffrey does not present those skills as in any way problematic. He's just like, <laughs> yep, she does that, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and she also, we're told that Morgan um, teaches uh, Mathematica, mathematics or astrology, depending on how you translate it, okay. um, to her sisters. So she's like a science teacher for her sisters. Interesting. <laughs> um, And she's a really wonderful combination of kind of male and female roles. She's called a a fertility goddess, a healer, and a beauty. But then she's also a teacher of mathematics and or astrology and a ruler. You know, so she's really fulfilling male and female uh, functions. And, you know, Jeffrey's presentation of, uh, you know, where she lives is incredibly positive. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think when you connect Morgan, right, in in Jeffrey's uh, portrayal, um, with the way he presents Merlin's sister, Ganita, um, who then succeeds to Merlin's prophetic powers. it's it, They're pretty they a pretty amazing duo. <laughs> right. Uh, and Jeffrey also invents a wife for Merlin.
0: Oh, uh, really? I didn't know uh, that.
1: He invents a wife who very confusingly is is also named Gwendolyna. He seems to like that name, um, <laughs> right? Because it appears in the history too. But yeah. what happens is he really, throughout the poem, he really favors Ganita, the more kind of active female figure over Guendaluina, who's more what I would call a kind of traditional passive female. Um, And he really, you know, and and it even seems like um, Merlin finds his wife rather kind of distasteful. There's a great line um, where, uh, what does he say? Uh, Merlin says, I do not want sister, he's saying this to Ganita, I do not want sister, a sheep that pours out water in a spring's gaping cleft that is as wide open as the Virgin's urn during flood. So he seems to be characterizing his wife as maybe a rather dull-witted sheep. (laughs) And when he uses the word uh, hiatus, right, space between parts or cleft, um, that word can have off-color connotations in Latin. So he might really be dismissing his wife. Okay. Um, And what's really interesting is that he really favors his sister, who ends up having prophetic powers, right? Right. Um, And Ganita is this really fully realized character. She's super interesting, Um, so I really love the kind of Morgan, Ganita, you know, combination. Um, Mm -hmm. and it's, and I think what's really important about Ganita is that she, you know, she heals Merlin of his madness. I mean, that's really her, you know, one of her main, her main functions. Um, but Ganita is also a trickster like Merlin, but again, when Ganita is a, a successful trickster, Jeffrey's not at all critical of her. You know, right. um, really seems to celebrate her brilliance the way he celebrates Merlin's brilliance in his history. <laughs> so right. he really creates this interesting kind of brother, you know, brother sister team. Huh. Um, yeah, it's it's pretty cool. And and he has a he has every opportunity to to uh, criticize Ganita, um because there is a um, a scene um, in which you know she um, it's clear she is an adulteress and yet he doesn't condemn her. Um, right. So it's it's you know it's it's pretty pretty amazing. Um, so there are opportunities, I think, both in the life of Merlin the poem um, and also in the history, where Jeffrey could have really demonized some of his female figures, and he consistently chooses not to. Um, he seems to celebrate you know female cleverness <laughs> rather
0: than f- having them fall into that stereotype of the you know the um, the deceitful female. And he left. I mean, his audience would sort have. Of- Brought into the, bought into those stereotypes, I'm sure. But um, it's interesting that he, I mean, there's a lot more variety in attitudes to women in the Middle Ages than I think we assume.
1: Yeah, there is. And I, think, and I think even within a text like Jeffrey's, I mean, you know, it doesn't mean you don't have, you know, a couple of women who are, you know, who are deceitful, but you certainly have lots of males who are deceitful as well. You know? Well,
0: and that variety of women is in itself a feminist thing, right? That women mm-hmm. aren't, like, if yeah. you present women as universally good, that's not a mm-hmm. very good thing either. And
1: I think also just the very end of, of Jeffrey's life of Merlin is just amazing where Merlin is just, you know, transferring power to his sister and is saying, you know, rejoice in your gift. You know, it's really um, it's really pretty, uh, pretty amazing. Um, and I think a lot of, I guess the other thing I was thinking about with the history that's important is that, you know, folks... Now tend not to to know that um, you know that that Geoffrey's myth, right of the of the you know of Brutus founding Britain became the basis for you know for King Edward the claim to sovereignty over Scotland. You know, so there were real world uses of this history. Sure, um, and I think that folks you know folks forget that. Yeah. Um you know, you also have the later claims, you know, for a sovereign England by, you know, Edward I, Edward III, you know, Henry VI. So there's, you know, there's a way in which Geoffrey's history, you know, lives on into, you know, into real life. And I think that, you know, very few people now know anything about Empress Matilda or would, you know, accept my position as a, as someone who works on history that I do think that if we're going to include, you know, male child kings that, Matilda should be included as a King of England. <laughs> right. You know? Um, she did have, you know, the sole source of Royal authority from February till late summer of 1141, you know, it's not a long time. Yeah. Um, but we do know that she, you know, she was the only source of Royal authority. Um, you know, she has a seal, um, you know, a Royal seal. And I think, um, she clearly crafted herself, you know, as, um, you know, the domina Anglorum, right, the sovereign lord of, of the English, right, so she, she clearly thought of herself as a king, and I, I really think that that moment when um, when Cordelia, you know, dies, um, you know, she seems to die because she is, she literally cannot live not being king anymore, you know, having hmm. lost power, and I think there is something very powerful about Cordelia's death for that reason, that it is, to, I, I see it as a kind of, um, I don't know, politically motivated death, Right. Um, you know that her, her 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 sense of herself is she's a king and when she can't be king anymore, then she doesn't want to be alive anymore.
0: Right. Um,
1: which is, you know, I think a, also a, a kind of statement that Jeffrey's making about the legitimacy of um of Empress Matilda's power.
0: So right. interesting. Yeah. Thank you once again. I hope we see you uh sometime sooner or later in Nova Scotia again. Yeah, I hope so too. You've been listening to Eavesdropping on Arthurians with Kathy Cozzi. Join me next time to eavesdrop on another chat about a different but equally fascinating story about Arthur. Our music is Mordred's Lullaby by Heather Dale. You can download it for free from heatherdale.com.